like to welcome any of you who may not be a part of the Wallace Church family this morning. Thank you on behalf of our church family for tuning in. We're very, very grateful that you did. Let me explain to you why we are at this particular passage. This semester we started a series preaching through 1 Peter. This is from the hand of the Apostle Peter, the one you may know denied Jesus and then became a great preacher in the early Christian church. His first epistle, we've been working through it, and we're coming to two verses in 1 Peter actually that reference the resurrection. So in terms of timing, this is just perfect for resurrection morning. But I want to start reading at verse 17. The two, two verses we'll focus on are 20 and 21. But just to give a little context, let me start reading for us at verse 17. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 17 to 21. This is the word of the Lord. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Here are the two verses of our focus. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. One year ago, almost to the day, I contracted a disease. It's called University of Virginia Basketball on the Brain. The team I have cheered for, for four decades, UVA, won the national championship in basketball one year ago. First time ever for them. Janice and I were ecstatic. We walked up the hill from Hatsi and we shouted out loud the UVA fight song about midnight after all the festivities died down. It was extra sweet to us because we both received our graduate degrees at UVA. Our daughter recently graduated from UVA. We lived in Charlottesville, not far from the university, for 14 years. And perhaps sweetest of all, the head coach of the Virginia basketball team is a deeply committed Christian man. I just couldn't get over the victory. If you'd have greeted me any time months after the national championship game, and said, uh, Mike, how are you? I'd say, fine. Did you know Virginia won the national championship? <laughs> Couldn't escape the wonder of it all. You didn't have to urge me to talk about it or savor it. It was the impulse of my soul. In fact, when I use my extra bike, I'll often turn on the YouTube of the final game and watch it. I still get chills. Are they really going to win? It's really going to happen. <laughs> just doesn't get old. In the same way, the Apostle Peter has victory stuck in his mind. The victory of Jesus Christ over sin and death. 
The Lord Jesus won the battle for guilty souls by a sacrifice on the cross on Good Friday. Jesus rose victorious from the grave the third day to defeat death. For Peter, it doesn't get old. And it serves Peter in his suffering. It gives him hope, confidence. You and I have found it like Peter to be thoroughly life-transforming. Read for yourself again in chapter 1 how Peter begins talking about Jesus and he can't get away from Jesus. One thing leads to another and he must elaborate, expand, extrapolate. Peter wants to, ex to stretch the horizon of your thinking to expand your vision of the incomparable glory of Jesus. And so by the time you reach this point in chapter 1, you're wondering, well, having just proclaimed in verse 19, look at it quickly, proclaimed in verse 19 that the way God ransoms helpless, guilty sinners for his presence is through the precious blood of Jesus, you're wondering, what more can he say? Well, here it is in 20 and 21. He's got more to say about Jesus. He has Jesus stuck on his mind. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead. This is why this is a great Resurrection Day passage gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Do you notice in there that what you should know about Jesus, according to the end of verse 20, is for your sake? And at the end of verse 21, so that your faith and hope are in God. What is said about Jesus is explicitly purposed to increase your trust in God you're resting in God, your confidence in God, you're delighting and glorying in God. So, this morning, let's look at the three specific things said about Jesus, the incomparable Jesus, that are designed to strengthen your faith and hope in God. Summarize it this way. In this text, Jesus is revealed, risen, and returning all for your sake. For your sake. Number one, Jesus is revealed for your sake. Verse 20, he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest, revealed in the last times for the sake of you. Let me show you two breathtaking facts about Jesus. Fact number one, before Jesus was revealed, he was foreknown before the foundation of the world. Who exactly knew Jesus? His Father. Jesus is the eternally existent, uncreated Son of God. John 1.1, 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word, Jesus. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. When Jesus prays a bit later in the Gospel of John, he says this in John 17, 5, And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory I had with you 
before the world existed. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit existing eternally together in immeasurable love. This is the very love God invites you to be a part of, to know, to experience, to share in eternally. Listen to what Jesus says in John 14, 23. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. What could possibly be more thrilling to a human soul than knowing God wants to make his home in you? To make you know how precious you are, how much he loves you, to make you his eternal dwelling. We in God, God in us. That bears contemplating at length. The text says he was foreknown. What's the connection at the beginning of verse 20 and verse 19? What, what specifically does Peter have in mind was foreknown about Jesus? I think it's that verse 19 tells us that the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish, that's how God would ransom his people. That's what's the foreknownness in, my, in Peter's mind at this point. And this verse hints at a plan laid in place from before the foundation of the world. God the Father chose his son to come to earth to save Adam's ruined race. Yes, the plan planned before Adam and Eve fell. Yes, the plan planned with the full knowledge that Adam and Eve would blow it and plunge all of the world into ruin and misery by their rebellious choice to turn against God. That plan, in light of that fall, set in place. Perhaps one way to translate Revelation 13:8, the lamb who was slain before the creation of the world. And here's what you need to know. You were in the mind of God when he was planning with his son from all eternity to rescue us from Adam's sin. Look at the beginning of chapter 1, verse 2. We're told we were elect according to the foreknowledge of God. Same word. Jesus was foreknown. We who know Jesus by faith were foreknown. Think of the mystery, the wonder, the grace of that. I personally find tremendous comfort when my heart's a mess, when my soul's wandering, when I'm fearful, doubting, God feels different. I find tremendous comfort realizing two things. God created me. I owe my existence to God. It's very clear in the Bible. But even before I was physically created, God determined to save me, to, to, to give me faith in his son, to make me one with his son, Jesus. God determined that from all eternity. In other words, God wants friendship with you. He wants intimacy with you. He wants fellowship with you. Do you find that hard to believe? I do. But when I do, I find it immensely comforting. God wants me. He not only wanted me to exist physically, he wanted me to exist eternally, spiritually renewed, according to this wonderful plan in Jesus Christ. 
Well, obviously, if this plan was put in place before the foundation of the world, Jesus has waited and waited and waited and waited for the plan to be put into action. <laughs> he waited until when? Look at verse, uh, the second fact in verse 20. Manifested in these last times. The invisible eternal Son became visible, physically present. God wants you to see in himself, see himself in Jesus. God wants to be known, wants to be seen. And it turns out Christian believers hold that we, we see Jesus in two installments. The Old Testament, about three quarters of your Bible, and the New Testament. Jesus comes in two installments. The Old Testament is sort of the preamble, preamble to the manifestation of Jesus. And the Bible tells us that Jesus appeared in the Old Testament in terms of types, shadows, prophecies. The technical term for Jesus appearing there, and he does, is too long to list now, are theophanies. Jesus was there in the Old Testament, all anticipating the final revelation of Jesus, the foreknown Redeemer in the New. So the message of the Old Testament is what? He's coming. The message of the New Testament is, He's here. What was promised, fulfilled. What was anticipated, delivered. What was shadow is reality. What was a bud is a full flower. The blueprint is now a building. Most of us have ordered something online. <laughs> you, you go online, you find that thing, and there's the picture of it. And push prime. We're going to get it in two days, honey. We have prime. And you're waiting, waiting. Here comes the UPS truck. There it is. There's the box. You open it. The real thing. The Old Testament is the picture. The New Testament is the delivery. The real thing. And remember, when did God order Jesus to appear for you? From all eternity, Jesus was ordered by the Father. And of course, the real thing is superior to the pictures. Now, it turns out, as we read the Old Testament, the picture becomes clearer and clearer exactly who Jesus is going to be. Theologians call this progressive revelation. Think of David Miner's wonderful sermon from Thursday night unpacking for us the glory of Jesus spoken of in Isaiah 53. That's really, really clear. More clear than some of the types and shadows and other things. But the point is, it should have been clear to the disciples in the New Testament. They don't have excuses. There were two men befuddled and confused that though they had known uh, uh, on the road to Emmaus, they had known Jesus as a prophet, mighty in word and deed. And, and Jesus comes alongside them and he rebukes them for not understanding that the Old Testament prophesied explicitly who he would be, Luke 24, 25. Jesus said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? There's his death and resurrection. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, code for the entire Old Testament, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. 
And this is why I take the phrase in verse 20, uh, in the last times, to mean the last times of the old covenant. The era of the preamble, now that Jesus is here, is fading away. All that was anticipated of Messiah is coming to reality. The book of Hebrews in the New Testament unpacks this beautifully for us. Maybe think of it this way. If you were to walk with me in my neighborhood in Virginia in the, in the early spring and look into the forest, all you'd see are gray trees and their bare branches and the brown leaves of the copper beech trees. Those leaves have stayed on all through the winter. But as spring begins to spring, those leaves fall off to make, for, make way for the new green leaves of the copper leaf, copper beech tree. The Old Testament leaves have fallen off. The brilliant green leaves of Jesus has appeared now in the New Testament. And not only is Jesus foreknown and promised the Redeemer of Adam's fallen race, but according to verse 21, look at the result. Who through him are believers in God. So what does that mean? Peter's writing to Gentiles. He's writing largely Gentiles. He's writing to people who, when the Christian gospel found them, they found the real God. They were delivered from false gods, from paganism, and they ditched what was unreal for the reality of the living God. So through him you are believers in God means at least this much, that in revealing his son, God makes himself known. I'll say it a little stronger. There's no other way to know God except in Jesus Christ. There's no other God to be known except in Jesus Christ. Jesus said, I and the Father are one. Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. In John 8, John, Jesus had a very heated discussion with the religious leaders of his time. And he said, if you knew God, you'd love me. They didn't know God because they didn't love him. The book of Hebrews tells us Jesus is the radiance of his glory. The exact representation of his nature. In fact, the book of Hebrews is... It shows this wonderful transition from the old to the new. The book of Hebrews begins this way. Long ago, at many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir things through whom he made the world. One of my seminary professors, Dick Gaffin, said, Jesus Christ is the last day's speech of God. Jesus is what God wants you to know about him. That's why Jamie led us earlier from Colossians 1.15. Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. By him all things were created in heaven and in earth. Got John 1.18, no one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side has made him known. The only truth about God is Jesus. And Jesus alone makes our approach to God safe. Jesus said in John 5, the Father judges no one, but all judgment has been given to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Jesus demands the same honor, the same worship, the same devotion as his Father thus making himself equal with God. You realize the reason the Jewish leaders wanted to crucify Jesus was the technical charge of blasphemy. 
I was reading yesterday in my devotions in John 10, verse 33. The Jews answered Jesus, It is not for a good work that we are seeking to stone you. That was the penalty for blasphemy, stoning, capital punishment. It's not for a good work that we're uh, going to stone you, but for blasphemy because you, being a man, make yourself God. Couldn't have been clearer. Peter himself confessed, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, John 6, 68. Let me just push pause and say, for some of you, this is hard. You feel like I am spouting the same kinds of things you've heard from narrow-minded Christians for a long time. How can you people claim to have a corner on the truth? How can there be only one way to heaven? Isn't the world far too diverse, God too accepting to say that there's only one way to heaven? I understand your concern, but you need to hear me. I am only repeating the words of Jesus. So I would say take up your concern with him. Read his words. Read the Gospel of John. Ask Jesus, if you're the only way, you better convince me. Let Jesus speak for himself. These aren't my words. I'm repeating the message of the God-man himself who made them. One thing, those of us who believe that Jesus is God, is we'd love to tell you about how knowing him has delivered us from false gods. Through him you are believers in God. In other words, following Jesus, trusting Jesus, believing in Jesus, seeing Jesus as God, believing that what he says about himself is in fact true, these are all graces that we believe the Spirit of God has given us as a gift. We find that, that belief in Jesus delivers us from false gods. In other words, the thing our hearts, like yours, long for, approval, control, being right, being competent, success, appearance, comfort, all the kinds of things we make absolutes in our hearts, we actually find Jesus ultimately more appealing, more compelling, more beautiful, more satisfying, and more powerful than those false gods. Now, that would be a whole bunch of different sermons to unpack. But Christ surpasses all these things in who he is for us and in us. All right, that's the first point. It's the longest point in the sermon. We're, we're unpacking why Peter has victory stuck in his mind, the victory of Jesus Christ. He has three things to tell you for your sake, to help your faith and confidence in God about Jesus. He is revealed. Secondly, he's risen for your sake. That's what makes us a good Easter morning sermon. Risen for your sake, verse 21, who raised him from the dead. How can anyone know this? Well, you have to take Peter's word for it. And the other apostles, and the apostle Paul, and according to Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, 500 witnesses alive at the time Paul wrote 1 Corinthians 15, at least 20 years later. Were you around on 9-11? That's about 20 years ago. Do you know exactly what you were doing when you heard about 9-11? Of course you do. I could tell you where I was sitting. I could tell you what I was eating at La Madeline Bakery in Fort Worth, Texas. I can, it's been 20 years. Well, it was so vivid, I know exactly what I was doing and who I was having breakfast with. This isn't a fantasy. This is a reality. 
Peter knew it because he witnessed it. And he knew it because on the witness of some women who in that day were not admissible in courts of law as witnesses, but nonetheless, the women came and they said, his body's not in the grave. And Peter went and he looked in and he left perplexed. He didn't leave a believer in the resurrection. An empty tomb alone doesn't prove anything. Somebody could have stolen the body. Now, in fact, no one ever produced it, so the theory that someone stole the body is highly, highly, highly improbable. But Peter left perplexed. And this is why Jesus appeared bodily to his disciples to prove his resurrection. He didn't sort of shout from heaven invisibly, look at the empty tomb, if that's sufficient. No. Luke 24, 39, see my hands and my feet, that's I myself. Touch me and see. A spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. And when he had said this, he showed him his hands and feet. And while they were still disbelieving for joy, it was hard for them to wrap their minds around this. They weren't expecting this kind of resurrection. Yes, there's a resurrection of the dead at the end of time. Remember in John 11 when Jesus comes to Lazarus' grave and Mary and Martha are Jesus proclaims himself the resurrection and the life, and, and Mary or Martha says, well, I know there's going to be a resurrection at the end of time. This was a surprise. Jesus was simply, as we'll see in a little bit, fast-forwarding into the present, the final resurrection, more on that in a second. Jesus said, do you have anything to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish. He took it and ate it before them. Bear in mind, numerous times, Peter heard Jesus predict this very event. Here's one from Luke 18, 33. After flogging the Son of Man, Jesus said, they will kill him, and the third day he will rise. And Peter himself heard Jesus explain the necessity of this, again in Luke 24. This was one of those uh, first social distancing things. The disciples were afraid of the religious leaders. They social distanced themselves, huddled up in a room with a lot of fear and confusion. And Jesus appears to them, says, here I am. And then he says this. These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And he said to them, thus it is written. This is, the, this is the summary of the Old Testament, the heart of the Old Testament. That Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. And the repentance for forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning from Jerusalem. Here's a wonderful promise from that verse. I can't unpack the verse in its, in its entirety. Jamie did for us um, the, the, the verses that preceded this a couple sermons back. Check that out. But it says he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. You want to know more about Jesus? You want to know more about the word of God? You want to understand the implications uh, of the resurrection and death of Jesus? Ask the spirit of God to open your mind. He will. He'll give you understanding. Jesus would reveal himself to whosoever would ask. I love what uh, British evangelical Alistair McGrath, how he, how he puts uh, the ministry of Peter and Paul uh, 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 in contrast to each other. In his book, What on Earth Was God Doing on the Cross? McGrath says, Peter in the book of Acts is principally concerned with proclaiming resurrection, proclaiming it. He rose. The Father raised him. Jesus rose. In the epistles, Paul is concerned with teasing out the implications of it. Okay. One last thing. 
Peter was an iron ear witness to. As Jesus gathered his disciples before he is left it off the earth and he, they saw him ascend into heaven, an angel said this to the apostles. Peter heard this, Acts 1.11. This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. That leads to what sort of expectation? He is coming again. And that reference is right here in the text. So this is the third point. Peter has victory stuck in his mind. What does he want you to know for your sake, for the strength of trusting God, confidence in God, walking with God, resting in God? Jesus is uh, revealed. Jesus is risen. And finally, Jesus is returning. And it's verse 21. God raised him from the dead and gave him glory. Now, how do I get the return of Jesus in that? Let me explain. This gave him glory is multifaceted. And by glory, it, it means that the Father honored the Son, endowed him with splendor and majesty. So the glory of Jesus is not only, not only, the glory of the Redeemer, that the Father signifying his pleasure and acceptance with the sacrifice of Jesus for sins. Son, the plan we set in place before the creation of the world, you fulfilled what I asked you to do. You lived perfectly in the place of sinners, earning a righteousness they could never do for themselves. You died the death their sins deserved on the cross. You put away their guilt, their condemnation. You paid the price. He, God the Father glorified his Son as the Redeemer of his people. And the Father glorified his Son with a resurrected indestructible body, which proves that he conquered death, victory over the grave. And the Father gave him glory in his ascension. Jesus is crowned with glory and honor as he ascends into heaven, King of kings, Lord of lords, the exalted Son, the one whose name is above every name, the one for whom every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The glory of Jesus in his ascension, the glory of Jesus in his session, sitting at the right hand of the Father, taking that place of rule, Lord of the nations, constantly interceding for his church. But also, the glory of Jesus in his second coming as judge of all the earth. So when you think of the sufferings of Jesus, that goes from the time he is incarnate in the womb of the Virgin Mary until he breathes his last and his body is laid in the tomb, his sufferings. His glory begins with his resurrection and concludes with the second coming. It's so interesting when you read through 1 Peter, Peter can't get away from the resurrection nor the second coming of Jesus. They hang together. In fact, if you count them, there are, by my count, at least five times Peter refers to the resurrection, nine to the second coming, often with the phrase, the revelation of his glory. What is the reason they hang together? Why in Peter's mind... Can he not talk about the second coming after he talks about the resurrection? Because the resurrection is just step one in the renewal of all things. Jesus' bodily resurrection, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15 and elsewhere, is the first fruits of the final resurrection. And really it's the final resurrection of God's people and indestructible bodies that is the goal of Jesus' work. 
Yes, a sacrifice on the cross is essential to put away the guilt and the pollution of sin because you can't, you can't occupy a sinless resurrected body with a sinful soul. First, Jesus needs to cleanse your soul by the blood of his cross, but then there's more. He's going to give you an eternal indestructible body like his own, a body that can never sin, get sick, be sad, or die. Jesus came to give you a body fit for the presence of God. That's what Adam and Eve had before they fell. Bodies fit for the presence of God. As Jesus is in the presence of God now in a resurrected body, that is nothing less than the ultimate goal of Christ's work to fit you for the radiant presence of God and be safe and enjoy and praise and savor this God in an indestructible body with your elder brother Jesus in his body. Now Jesus made this clear in his teaching. He came to raise the dead. John 5, 28 to 29. Don't marvel at this for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice. And will come out, those who have done good to a resurrection of life, those who have done evil to a resurrection of judgment. And then in John 6, uh, John 6 alone, four times Jesus uses the phrase, the promise, I will raise him up on the last day. I will raise him up on the last day. John 6, uh, 39, this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose none of those whom he has given me, but raise him up on the last day. This is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes should not perish but have everlasting life, and I will raise him up on the last day. What's God's will for your life? To raise you from the dead. How does that come about? You look to Jesus in faith. You look to Christ to put away your sins. You believe in him as Savior. You take him as Lord. So, so Peter is just repeating words he'd already heard Jesus teach. I want you to think of it this way. When Virginia won the national championship a year ago, Tony Bennett, their coach, they put a ladder underneath the net, and he ascended the ladder, and he began to cut the net. This is done after all championships. Symbolic that there's no more balls going through. The final scores happen. We're the victors. When Jesus rose from the dead, he began cutting the nets. But what happened about 10 minutes later? They got the trophy. When Jesus comes again in glory, he is coming to claim his trophies. You who believe in him. And you know how Isaiah 49, 16, God tells his people when they're fearful that God will forget them. He says, I will never forget you. I have engraved you in the palm of my hands. Jesus has put his name in you. The trophy has engraved you in the palm of his hand. He can't wait to get his hands on that trophy. You because he loves you. You are of an infinite value to him. He wants to hold you. And amazingly, he loves and saves broken people like us. But he makes them his treasure. We do well to start every day thinking on how precious we are to Jesus as his trophy treasure. That is supposed to instill in us faith and hope in God, the end of verse 21. You can trust him. He keeps his promises. I can be confident his purposes for my life will unfold. Let me, let me do one application as we finish. 
And it's the, Peter's use of this word hope here at the end of 21. I think Peter's actually putting a bracket and, and, and putting, an, putting a conclusion to where he begins this section in verse 13. Verse 13 starts this section through 21. In 13, we see the word hope again. Therefore, preparing your minds for action, being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that we brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. See, there's the second coming. The cross is one thing, the resurrection another. The second coming is the ultimate. No wonder Peter's the one who writes in 2 Peter about the new heavens and the new earth. That's the ultimate destiny of believers. But I want to ask this question, what is essential to vibrant confidence and faith and hope? According to that verse, what's essential? Your thinking. Prepare your minds for action. Be sober-minded. When you have Jesus on the brain, your thinking changes. It's resurrected. It goes from death to life, lies to truth, darkness to light, fear to hope, self-centered to Christ-centered, impressions and feelings to the truth of the Word of God. Paul would say, set your mind on the things above. Be transformed in the spirit of your mind. Be renewed in the spirit of your mind. And so because of the resurrection, we have a new lens through which we interpret all of our lives. I just want you to think of it this way as I close. There are fundamentally two ways to view every issue in your life. Take an issue, suffering, fears, your finances, prosperity, time, difficult people, bearing with injustice, sensuality, self-esteem. Take any issue. You can either view it from the perspective of I'll be my own interpreter or through the lens of the gospel of the love of Christ for you. Now theologians say, and I think aptly, that when you are your own interpreter, you're in the grip of sin, and one way to think about sin is as an infection of the mind. You never Think in a way that brings you to freedom. When you think according to the lens of all that God has done for you in Jesus Christ, put away your sins. He'll raise you from the dead. He's coming for you in glory. The love of Jesus for you, there is freedom. That's why Jesus said, if you abide in my word, you'll know the truth and the truth will set you free. So it's infection of the mind or freedom. Every issue in your life, how would you know that the resurrection is rescuing you from ruinous reasoning. All those R's. <laughs> How would you know that the resurrection is rescuing you from ruinous reasoning? Well, it's producing joy, confidence. The promises of God are vivid. You see God's power in your life. You trust his goodness. You ache to delight him in all you do. And you have an increasing holy disdain for your pride. That's freedom. That's glory. Jesus on the brain. Let's pray. We worship you, Lord Jesus, crucified for our sins and according to the scriptures, raised on the third day, now reigning in heaven, praying for us, governing our lives in this world. Lord of lords, King of kings, our Prince of peace, the one whom to know is life eternal. We worship you.
transform our thinking by this hope. And give us grace and mercy and love through the power of your cross and resurrection to know you, your Father, and to savor his and your dwelling in us. Make us more and more like you. In your precious name, amen.